0: Hey everybody, what's up, and welcome to episode 13 of Summarily, a podcast for busy lawyers. I'm your host, Robert Scavone Jr., and I'm glad you're back for another episode. Last week, the podcast crossed the 1,000 download episode. I'm really excited about this, especially because the podcast has only been around for about three months, so thank you all again for listening. My goal is to continue to provide timely appellate updates ...and to bring you interesting guests to discuss important legal issues and important legal news. And in an effort to keep the podcast concise, I'm going to make two changes moving forward. First, I'm going to divide the criminal and civil opinions into different categories... ...if in a given week there are a lot of opinions in each category. Most criminal practitioners don't really want to hear civil opinions and vice versa so making separate episodes will allow listeners to get what they need as quickly as possible. The second change involves the length of each individual update. Some listeners have suggested that I shorten the opinion recaps. They want to hear the issue, the holding, and some of the rationale, and have told me that the length of the factual background isn't really necessary. Frankly, the plan from the get-go with this podcast was to keep the episodes short, Because my goal is to give you a heads up about important issues and changes to the law not to provide a treatise on each opinion. The opinions I cover are in the show notes. You can get links to them there and read them if the issue is important to your practice area. This is, after all, a podcast for busy lawyers. So I hope that these changes will get you in and out as quickly as possible. Okay, before we get to the opinions for this episode, let's hit the disclaimers. Number one, I am not your lawyer. Number two, if you have a legal issue, please call a lawyer. Number three, the following podcast is not legal advice. And number four, this is not an advertisement for legal services. I am not here for your business. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, let's get going. We start with some civil opinions There is only one quick criminal update for this episode, and I will cover that at the end, along with an update about a new law regarding judicial notice. First, we have Ford Motor Credit Company versus Parks, which was issued by the first DCA on May 11th. Ford sued Parks for failing to make lease payments. Lease was attached to the complaint. And entered into evidence during a virtual bench trial. The trial court entered judgment in favor of Parks solely because the electronically filed lease was illegible. Ford appealed. The issue before the first DCA was whether it could second-guess the trial court as to the legibility of the lease. Noting no Florida law on point, the court looked to opinions from other states for guidance. The question was whether the relevant portion of the electronically filed lease was decipherable with readily available computer magnification. And in this case, the relevant portions of the lease agreement could be read and therefore the lease was sufficient evidence to establish Ford's contractual basis for claiming default. The first DCA held that the lower court erred in entering judgment for parks next is Commodore Inc versus Lloyd's of London which was issued by the third DCA on May 11th this is a case of first impression in Florida Commodore operated a restaurant and bar in coconut grove it lost money when it was shut down due to COVID restrictions Commodore filed a claim with its insurer Lloyd's and moved for declaratory relief claiming that the policy covered its economic loss. The policy provided for the loss of business income due to suspended operations, quote, caused by direct physical loss or damage to property. The policy did not define physical loss or damage to property. The trial court dismissed the petition for declaratory relief with prejudice, finding that the direct physical loss provision under the policy required some tangible alteration to the insured property. Commodore appealed the dismissal. The third DCA affirmed. It noted that Commodore asserted two grounds for why the trial court erred. First it failed to consider the dictionary definitions for physical loss of or damage to property and second that the inability to use the property for its intended use constituted direct physical loss of the property. The third DCA rejected both of these arguments and held that direct physical loss means actual damage to the property. A victory for common sense. Next we have a string of sovereign immunity cases which I will quickly recap. In Nassau versus Ronald Hall and G4S Security Solutions, issued on May 4th by the 4th DCA, the court reaffirmed its opinion in Lovelace v. G4S Security Solutions and held that the private parties who contract with the state and act as an agent of the state are entitled to limited rather than absolute sovereign immunity. The next sovereign immunity case is McKinley versus Galtieri which was issued by the second DCA on May 4th. Here the court held that a person bitten by a police dog cannot bring a strict liability claim under Florida's dog bite statute because the Florida Tort Claims Act bars strict liability actions against the state or its agencies. Such a person may however bring a claim under common law negligence. As for the sovereign immunity component, the sheriff's office argued that its decision to deploy a canine deputy and his or her dog was a discretionary function, thus barring the plaintiff's claim. The second DCA rejected this argument and held that although the decision to patrol the baseball venue with a canine may have been discretionary, The act of patrolling the venue with a canine was operational. Therefore, the plaintiff's negligence claim was not barred by sovereign immunity. And the final sovereign immunity case was issued by the 3rd DCA on May 4th, and it is Simmons v. Public Health Trust of Miami-Dade County. I guess May 4th was Sovereign Immunity Day. This is also a case of first impression. Simmons was allegedly beaten while residing at Jackson's psychiatric facility in October of 2013. To maintain a tort claim against a state or its agency, Florida's sovereign immunity statute requires a plaintiff to present pre-suit notice to the Department of Financial Services within three years from when the claim accrues. The incident in this case occurred on October 11 of 2013. The Department of Financial Services received the pre-suit notice on October 13th of 2016, two days late. And Jackson received the notice on October 17th of 2016. The court noted that the word present is not defined by statute, and there is no case law on point. Looking at the ordinary meaning of the word and analogizing to federal statutes, the court held that a claimant presents his notice for a claim under the sovereign immunity statute on the date the state agency or subdivision receives in hand the notice of the claim, not on the date that the claimant mails his notice Of the claim to the agency or subdivision. Because Simmons missed the deadline in this case, the trial court did not err in entering summary judgment in favor of Jackson. And for our final civil opinion we move to federal land to discuss voting rights in Florida. The 11th Circuit issued League of Women Voters of Florida Inc. versus Florida Secretary of State on May 6. The league filed suit challenging three provisions of SB 90, which the governor signed into law in May of 2021. The challenged provisions regulate the use of drop boxes, require third-party voter registration organizations to deliver registration applications to the county where the applicant resides, and prohibits voting solicitation within 150 feet of a drop box or polling place. The League claimed that the provisions discriminated on the basis of race in violation of the Constitution and Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and ran afoul of the First Amendment. In a 288 page order, the District Court found that, quote, SB 90 runs roughshod over the right to vote, unnecessarily making voting harder for all eligible Floridians, unduly burdening disabled voters, and intentionally targeting minority voters. The District Court also found that the provisions were intentionally discriminatory, violating the Constitution and Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and that the solicitation provision violated the 1st and 14th Amendments because it was unconstitutionally vague and overbroad. Accordingly, the District Court permanently enjoined the challenged provisions. The state moved for a stay pending appeal. The 11th Circuit granted the stay. In doing so, it held that the quote-unquote traditional standard for a stay does not apply when the Purcell Principle is in play. The Purcell Principle comes from a U.S. Supreme Court opinion and, in short, says that courts should not issue injunctions of state election laws in a period close to an election. So the question becomes, what is too close to an election? The 11th Circuit noted that in Purcell, The court did not define what it meant by, quote-unquote, on the eve of an election. But nonetheless, the court stated that, quote, whatever purcells outer bounds, we think this case fits within them. The court supported its holding by pointing to Merrill v. Milligan, a case from earlier this year where the Supreme Court granted a stay about four months before a primary election. It is important to note, however, that Milligan is a shadow docket case, meaning it was decided on an expedited basis without full briefing or oral argument. What makes the 11th Circuit's citation to Milligan even more troubling is that there is no majority opinion in that case. The Supreme Court granted the stay by a 5-4 vote, But the only opinions authored were a concurrence and dissents. So, it is not entirely clear to me how the 11th Circuit can cite to an opinion without an opinion as being persuasive. In fact, when the 11th Circuit quotes from Milligan, it cites the concurrence. Legal commentators do not agree that orders issued on the shadow docket are precedent upon which lower courts may rely, but even assuming that they are, I can't imagine that it is true when there is no majority opinion. In any event, by granting the stay, the 11th Circuit greenlit SB 90 and its provisions will be in place for the upcoming midterms. I noted at the beginning of the podcast that there weren't many noteworthy criminal opinions for these past couple of weeks, but I did want to point out one from the 5th DCA, which was issued on May 13th. The opinion is Corbett v. State, and it involves stand-your-ground immunity. The takeaway is this. The proper vehicle for challenging a trial court's merits decision as to stand-your-ground immunity is a petition for writ of prohibition. If, on the other hand, a defendant wants to raise procedural error on the part of the trial court, the proper vehicle is a petition for cert. Before I finish up, I want to point out a new law regulating judicial notice, which will go into effect on July 1, 2022. It's Florida Statute Section 90.2035. A link to the law, as well as a link to all the cases we discussed today, can be found in the show notes. I will read the summary of 90.2035. Quote, it authorizes courts to take judicial notice of certain information taken from widely accessible web mapping services, global satellite imaging sites, or internet mapping tools upon request of a party. It requires parties who intend to offer such information into evidence To file a notice of intent containing specified information. It authorizes parties to object to the court taking judicial notice of such information, and creates a rebuttable presumption in civil cases that such information should be judicially noticed unless certain findings are made. And it requires the court to instruct the jury that the jury may or may not accept the noticed facts as conclusive in criminal cases well that wraps up episode 13 i have several interesting guests lined up for future episodes so please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out as always this podcast was produced by my friend chris clark of pendulum productions and you can find him and his work at vimeo.com backslash pendulum productions llc thank you for listening If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and hit the notification button. If you have comments or suggestions, please email me at summarilypod at gmail.com. That's S-U-M-M-A-R-I-L-Y-P-O-D at gmail.com. And remember, folks, case law is one word.